Good evening. Good afternoon, Good buddy. Hello, hello. So we have a good crowd tonight for our Bible study, and we were planning, I was planning on continuing our study of theocracy and healing, and tonight we were going to talk about special revelation and how the gift of apostle and prophet were unique to the first century when the church was first founded, and we were going to talk about special revelation as it connects to the concept of theocracy. So the Israelites, they had a special privilege that nobody else had in the world. They had God dwelling in their midst, and they had prophets that would reveal God's will to them. So we will talk about all of that, that unique scenario, next time. But tonight, I had a really cool opportunity to talk to a couple of Mormon gentlemen. They came knocking on the door right before we were about to get in the car and come to Bible study. And so I want to talk about the conversation that I had, and to me, it revealed some important things. So the first thing that, it, wait one second. That's the dishwasher. What is that? I thought that was my son yelling in the back room. Oh my goodness. So apparently the dishwasher. It's moaning. It's okay. I know what it is now. But I mean, for a second, I thought Jed is like, he is, he's dying in the back room right now. Goodness. Okay, take two. Take two, yeah. So can we just cut that out, Scott? We just like, or leave it in for entertainment value. I mean, we keep it real. Just let it go. Go ahead. Let it go. All right. Ah, I'll probably cut it out. Go. (laughs) So, so anyways, uh, what I was saying is, um, one of the things that we can often get sidetracked by is dishwasher. Dishwashers can sidetrack us for sure, Scott. Uh, I'm struggling. Yeah. Keep going. Oh, we keep it real. We keep it real here at Ark of Hope Baptist Church. Uh, I'm still here. I don't know if we're going to be able to go forward with this dishwasher. Because I don't know. All I know is it sounds like a wailing child in the background. So, anyways, uh, I'm just going to stop talking right now and we'll continue in a moment. It seems like it's getting stronger. It's a it's how it's loaded. Something in there is making it. It's got a lot of stainless steel in there. It's probably just the vibration. Oh my goodness. You open it up, Jamie just falls out. <laughs> it's not him. Oh goodness. I could I couldn't stay. I couldn't. Okay. Sounds good. Alright. You ready? One. Two. So anyways, um, we were we were thinking about me and Katie, we were talking about this afterwards, um, after the conversation with these Mormons, that we oftentimes forget the importance of understanding and communicating just the simple gospel. I know this for myself. I study theology a lot. I read a lot of books, and I do think that there are a lot of secondary doctrines that are important enough to fight for. Okay, I do believe that having a right view of the end times, having a right view of spiritual gifts, having a right view of creation, I think all these issues are very important. Uh, but they are secondary issues. The most important thing, if we were to like narrow it down, what are the most important things that Christians should all agree on? And sadly, they don't even always agree on these two things. The most important thing is, who is Jesus? 
And what does he give us? So we need to understand the giver and we need to understand the gift, how that gift is received and who is giving the gift to us. And if you can get those two down, like I can shake your hand and I can call you brother, I can call you sister, if we can get those two things down and we can agree on them. Um, a lot of these other things, like I said, they, they do have relevance and they can result in a spoiled fellowship because people have strong opinions about these issues. Okay. And the issue that I'm referring to is the one we're not talking about this week, healing. Divine healing is a pretty big issue. And you have churches, you know, the Pentecostal persuasion. Then you have other denominations of the cessationist persuasion. And, and that is going to affect, you know, the practical side of ministry. But if we could agree on what the gospel is, this is not, you know, trying to be ecumenical and making compromises like a lot of churches are. Okay, because a lot of evangelicals are making compromises on the gospel. That's ecumenical. Okay, I'm talking about if you can keep the pure evangelical message, then you know we can work together on that, if nothing else. And so if you've ever listened to this podcast, you, you'll know, if you've listened to me even once or twice, like we do take strong stances on a number of things. And we always try to back those things up from a scriptural standpoint. But tonight, we're just going to kind of take a break from the nitty gritty of secondary doctrine. And we're going to talk about the gospel and how to approach people who would claim to be Christian, but they don't agree with me on that, with us on that. Like I couldn't look at these Mormons and say, you're okay. Like you're going to go to heaven. I couldn't tell them that. I could only share with them the gospel, hoping that they would accept it. And, um, you know, Katie, my wife, she was talking with our daughter, Scotty, and Scotty thought that they were Christians because, you know, they were there and they, they were holding what looked to be a Bible. And Katie had ties and, and they had ties and name tags. <laughs> and so and they said, Jesus's name, we're here to share the love of Jesus. And Scotty was so excited because she's got a heart full of love for the Lord. And when she sees other people with that same love, it gets her excited. And we ought to have the exact same thing. We should never get tired of, of meeting new brothers and sisters in right. Christ. But Katie had to explain to her that, honey, they're not Christians, even though they say that they are. And that's a really hard thing to say. When you have that conversation with people, they're kind people, compassionate people. But one of the first things that came out of my mouth when once we introduced each other was, you know, I'm a pastor and I got saved when I was six years old. I'm a Baptist. And I said, based on what I just told you, you may already have guessed that I disagree with you on some stuff. And I said that we believe in a different Jesus. We do believe in a different Jesus. And that's a hard thing to say. And when I said it, it was like, I know that this is awkward. And it's a hard thing to say, especially when you just meet somebody, mm. you know, and they're coming up to you. And, you know, it's just formalities. You know, you're trying to be friendly with one another. But that was... Yes, like that was something that I had to say. Like, we believe in a different Jesus. And instead of just ignoring me and walking off or arguing with me, they actually listened. And I give them a lot of respect, give them a lot of uh, kudos for just listening to what I had to say. And, and honestly, during our conversation, I did most of the talking. But I did ask them questions. And some of those questions we're going to look at tonight because they have to do with this central issue of the gospel. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans 10. It's possible that we recorded this on the podcast a long time ago. I remember 
teaching either a lesson or it may have been a sermon one Sunday on Romans 10, but it's been a while. And this is one of those texts that I know uh, Matt, he talked on John 3.16, how that verse is one that you know can become cliche, but it's so central. And I like the way you broke it down. Uh, you said it was the cause and you said the, the, the consequence and was it the condition that you also said? The, the cause there was mm. the, uh, the, fourth, the fourth one, the cause, the cost. The cost, yes. The cost condition and then the consequence. Yes, like that's a really good way of remembering and breaking down John 3:16 and I didn't use that exact way of explaining it, but I did use John 3:16 in this conversation and I use Romans 10. These are some passages where again, we get used to them as evangelicals. And so they they may not seem quite as important to us because we hear the gospel we believe the gospel. You hear it so often that it just seems like, okay, let's move on to deeper doctrine. And that is important for a church, like, you know, to grow in your faith and to dig deep in doctrine. And a lot of churches may not take you past that initial understanding of salvation, but we always need to go back and clarify it because over time, I think some people get so comfortable with, okay, we, we got salvation down. So let's talk about this other stuff. And they talk about this other stuff and they develop systems of theology. And in time, sometimes what happens is they develop theology that contradicts that foundation yeah. and they don't realize it. And so then when they go back and they talk about the foundation, they'll end up redefining certain things that they didn't originally believe when they first heard it. You know, when a lot of people first get saved, they can share this experience. If they heard the gospel presented accurately, salvation's a free gift. If you receive Jesus as your savior, he'll come into your life. He'll change you, forgive you. And, and they hear that simple message and they believe it. And then later on, they start digging into theology, right? They think I'm progressing. Mm -hmm. I need to learn more. And then they end up learning theology that ultimately will contradict what they first learned when they became a believer. They forgot those elementary principles. And so it is important for us to go back and re-examine those. And one of the examples, of course, that I'm thinking of is people will get into seminary and they'll be told what grace means. Now, they already know what grace means. <coughs> they experienced grace when they got saved. And that grace was they were forgiven, secure, had eternal life, and knew they were going to heaven. Mm -hmm. And they believed that and they had joy in that. Then over time, they learn doctrines like perseverance of the saints, which makes them question, what is grace? Is grace getting saved and receiving eternal security? Or is grace also involving works? And, and works are this fruit of faith, which I should constantly be examining my life to mm -hmm. see if I have enough. Because if I don't have enough, maybe I don't have faith. And if I don't have faith, then I don't have the grace. And so, and I have no yes, and I have no security. So it's, it's interesting that these are things that generally you learn later. You're not going to learn that stuff in VBS. You're going to learn that stuff mm -hmm. when you go and you read the books and you go to school. And so it's important for us to go back and to look at these elementary things and to understand where they are in the Bible. For example, um, where in the Bible can we see these essential gospel truths that I shared with these Mormon fellows tonight? Okay, the first essential is Jesus is Lord in a divine sense. He's not Lord in the sense of being just a sovereign. Okay, there are angels who are called great princes. Okay, Michael's called an archangel. Okay. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we're not saying he's simply a celestial king, okay, that is essentially in the same category as angels, because that's what 
Mormons would teach, mm -hmm. and that's what Jehovah's Witnesses would teach, and that's not biblical. So where do we find in the Bible this clear teaching that Jesus is divine, not semi-divine, okay, not a God, but the God? So where do we find that? Where do we find the teaching that salvation involves the substitutionary atonement of Jesus? Okay, that he died for our sins. John 3.16 is such an important verse. It says that the, the father gave his son. But what does gave mean? You have to read the rest of the context, right, to find out. So it's important to express that teaching when you're sharing the gospel. That it's not just believe and be saved, but why, why do we need to be saved? What did God do to, to give us salvation? Substitutionary atonement. Mm. And there are Christians who they are letting that go. We did a lesson on this a while back, 1 Peter 3. We really talked about different theories of the atonement. I talked about Anselm and the reformers and penal substitution. But where in the Bible does it teach substitutionary atonement? Where does the Bible teach that salvation is by faith alone mm -hmm. and not of works? And Romans 10, to me, it teaches all of them. And I, and I love it how Paul, he tells us, like, I'm... I've given everything to Jesus. Like, I mean, he's, right. he's called me to be an apostle. And what is an apostle? A sent one. And I'm sent to do what? To preach the word of faith. This is what I preach to the Jews. This is what I preach to the Gentiles. This is what every person needs. And he defines it for us. So Romans 10 is like a summit, a summative. Is that the word summative? 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 Summary. Summary. Summary's good. But it's a summary of Everything that Paul's been talking about throughout the book in Romans 10, it comes to a head and he presents to us, this is Jesus, this is salvation, this is the word of faith. Now, if you were to look at the writings of Paul, he's going to teach you so many other things. We talked last week about Romans 11. We talked about, you know, the, uh, the olive branches, mm. the natural ones and the wild ones and how that plays into the end time. So he's going to teach you a lot of stuff. Okay. Very important stuff. But this is the most important thing of all. So in Romans 10, verse number one, um, so I don't have to read all of it. Somebody want to read uh, verses one through four. Somebody read Romans 10, one through four for me. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness for everyone who believes. Very good. Look, just as you read those verses, I pictured the faces of those two Mormons. Mm. And, you know, I got their names before they left so I could pray for them. The name's John and Owen. And these verses right here perfectly describe them. Like I can say right now, as I'm describing, you know, what I saw in their eyes when we were talking and, and their passion and going door to door, I could say about them, verse two, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. The knowledge is key. So many Christians who have not been properly educated or they have, and they've forgotten their education that they got in church, they got in Bible study. Today, there's this, this idea of, just kumbaya, everybody comes together. And as long as they believe in God, as long as they believe in Jesus, as long as they have that zeal and their passion for the Lord. But you can have zeal without knowledge. 
And that knowledge we're looking, we're not talking about knowing the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We're not talking about knowing every doctrine and understanding it properly because I don't know every doctrine perfectly. I'm still learning myself. But Paul makes it pretty clear and very easy for us that there are only a couple things that they need to know. Mm. And if they don't know these or they don't believe them, then they may have a zeal, but they don't have knowledge. So what do they need to know? Well, verse five, Paul gives us a way of cleverly expressing the word of faith. So he's going to, he's going to use a passage from the old Testament. He's going to use a passage from Deuteronomy 30, actually. And starting in verse five, it says, Moses describeth the law or sorry, the righteousness, which is of the law that the man, which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness, which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Here it is. This is what he's saying. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? So this is from Deuteronomy 30 verses 12 through 13. Who shall ascend into heaven? And then in parentheses, Paul explains how this correlates to what he's saying in the New mm. Testament. That is to bring Christ down from above. So just as Moses in the Old Testament could say, say not in thy heart who shall ascend into heaven, meaning you already have the law, it's already available to you. Now, as it pertains to the new covenant in Christ, he's saying, don't say in your heart who shall ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. Why? Because he's already come. He's already been revealed. And, and this is important. I've read several commentaries on this, and it's a, a verse that I love to study and share with you because you easily pass over it. Whenever you start to really get into theology and you're, you're looking at all these different cults and what they believe, one of the things that Unitarians deny is they'll say the New Testament doesn't teach that Jesus preexisted. Mm. One of their contentions is that you can search the New Testament and it doesn't actually teach that Jesus existed in heaven before he became a man. They'll say it all started with him becoming a man. This is becoming a very popular belief, by the way, on the internet. And there are lots of websites dedicated to debunking every verse mm. that traditional Orthodox Christians have used to teach this. So you could go to John 1, 1. Oh, they're ready for you. Okay. And they'll try to talk circles around you. And for people that don't really understand the subject at hand, they could easily be confused and duped. Mm. And so this is one of those verses that is so clear that a lot of scholars have noted that in Paul's mind, when it says, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. He's, impl he up he's, he's up there and he's already come down and he's returned back to where he was before. If you were to go to Ephesians 4, you compare these passages, you can see the commonality. In Ephesians 4, he says the one who ascended is the one who first descended. So it's very clear that Paul here and in other places, but you know, here in Romans 10 in particular, he's saying that Christ pre-existed in heaven and he came down. Now, what all that entailed, you could read in Philippians chapter 2. It says that he emptied himself of the glory of heaven. He became a servant. He took on flesh. Okay. So you could look at more of that detail in other places, but here it's simply Christ came down from above. So that's one important tenet of the evangelical uh, word of faith that Paul is describing here. Then it says, or don't say this either, who shall descend into the deep that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So it, it all ties into these two ideas of Christ coming down and Christ coming up. That's the gospel. He's saying, if I could describe the word of faith as it pertains to Jesus, 
Okay, it has to do with him coming down and it has to do with him coming up. Don't in doubt say, well, somebody's got to go up into heaven to bring the Christ down because he hasn't come yet. He says, on the contrary, he's already come down. Okay, and don't say into your heart, well, you know, yeah, there was this guy named Jesus, but somebody's going to have to go down in the abyss and get him from the dead because he died and he didn't come back. He's saying, on the contrary, he died and he rose again. And he explains this, of course, as we keep reading in verse 8. But what saith that the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith. Again, word of faith, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He ties it together right here. So when Paul talks about Jesus coming down from heaven, he was in heaven before. It's all summed up in him saying, Jesus is what? Lord. The Lord Jesus. Okay. If you, if you study the structure of the passage, these two ideas correlate. Jesus coming down, being in heaven before, correlates to Jesus being Lord. So when we think of Jesus as Lord, we're not thinking of him just as, okay, well, he's at the right hand of the Father now. And he was a... Uh, you know, resurrected, yes, and he was brought to the right hand of the Father now, and that's why he's Lord, mm. okay? That simply reveals something that people didn't believe before. Mm. When Jesus was walking in the midst of the Jews, um, all throughout the Gospel of John, but in John 7 and John 8, one of the things that he keeps saying is, I'm from above, and you're of below. Mm -hmm. You're from below. And you have to believe that I am he. You have to believe that I am from above. Now, that wasn't revealed until the resurrection, okay? So Jesus taught it, and there were people who believed it, but it wasn't declared until the resurrection. That's why in Romans 1, and I'll read this verse because it ties into everything here. In Romans 1, verse 4, it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was declared to be the son of God. He did not become the son of God. That has been a heretical teaching, by the way, of certain groups mm -hmm. in the church age that Jesus became the son of God. Some would say at his adoption, uh, they would say, or his adoption uh, took place when he was baptized. Other people would say that he really didn't become the son of God officially until his resurrection. But what Paul is saying here is he simply was declared to be the son of God. Okay, his divine nature was revealed when he came back from the dead and when he ascended to heaven, it says again in verse number nine, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, the Lord Jesus or Jesus is Lord as some translations render it and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Now, again, we do have to take into consideration the context earlier in the book. The idea of Jesus coming back from the dead is Jesus being vindicated, not just in his identity. Obviously it's proven to be the son of God. But it's also proven that what he did on the cross was effective. Okay, mm. so how does the resurrection tie into things? When I was growing up as a kid, I thought it was all just proving Jesus is God. That is part of it. Okay, clearly Paul says he was declared to be the divine son of God through his resurrection. He has power over the grave and death. That's right. And, and of course, I would always say that it gives me comfort that I'm going to be with him one day. Him coming back from the dead uh, gives me good reason to believe that I'll be resurrected myself. And that's all 100% true. But it mentions that Jesus was raised from the dead for our justification. So Jesus coming out of the grave three days after he was buried, after he died, it was God saying it was good. So what happened on the cross when Jesus said 
it was finished. God the Father already knew it was finished, but we didn't know that until he came out of the grave. Mm. And then it was, from a human perspective, done. On the cross, it was already done. Jesus knew it was done. That's why he stated it. And, and so did the Father. And so that's why the veil was torn then. The veil wasn't torn at the resurrection. It was torn at the crucifixion because from God's view, it was already done. But he came back from the dead to prove to us that this sacrifice was good for us, that it was effective. Jesus had paid our debt off. And so whenever we're sharing the gospel, this is something we should go to. Even if we don't use Romans 10, these teachings okay, that he's summing up as the word of faith, they ought to be in our conversation. Whenever I was talking with these fellows, I really was racking my brain. I was thinking, okay, here it is. I've studied my whole life. I've been in church my whole life. I've been to college, okay? I, I teach the Bible every day. But here I'm talking with people who are approaching me, okay? It's a little different. And, um, and I'm put on the spot. And this is only one opportunity. My students, if I don't clearly communicate something, I'm going to see them the next day. I've only got them one time. So what can I give them in this short amount of time? I knew we had to leave soon. What can I teach them, share with them in this short amount of time that they absolutely need to know? And what they absolutely needed to know was we have a different Jesus because you say that Jesus isn't Lord, not in the sense that he is Lord as declared in Romans 10 in, in Romans 10, 13. And I shared this verse for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a quote from Joel 2, 32. And if you were to go to Joel 2, 32, and you were to look at the word Lord in Hebrew, Yahweh. it's Yahweh. Right. So Jesus here is not just an angel like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. He's not a, a spirit brother of Lucifer like the Mormons say. He is Yahweh. And that was one thing that I kept hammering home. And how is that important? Uh, some people, I've even heard people who believe it say, that's not really something I bring up when I talk about you know, the gospel with Mormons for the first time. I'm like, no, no, no. That is one of the things that you have to bring up. Okay. Because it's an essential part of the word of faith. You have to believe this. Mm -hmm. He says, this is part of the gospel. And so I said in Joel chapter two, verse 32, I said, it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's talking about Yahweh. That's the God of Israel. I said, Jesus is one and the same. Okay. He's the son of the father, just like his father sharing his nature. The father's Yahweh, the son's Yahweh. Okay, just like, you know, I'm human, my son's human. He shares the same nature. Okay, and I said, and just as the Father is eternal without beginning and without end, Jesus says that he's the Alpha and the Omega, that he is the beginning and he is the ending, that he is the first and he is the last. So that's one thing we have to really hammer home because this is necessary for us. In order for us to have salvation, we have a debt, right, that is infinite. Mormons don't believe mm. that. Okay, they don't believe that this debt is an infinite debt. That's why they're comfortable with downplaying the torment of hell. Jehovah's Witnesses are the same thing. Okay, they, they believe in what's called, yeah, they believe in conditional uh, immortality, which means uh, unbelievers will basically be extinguished, like God blowing out a candle. They don't believe in a conscious place of torment for eternity. I don't like the idea, right? No one does, but it's in scripture. And that's what we're being saved from. Praise God. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And so the only one who could actually save us from eternity would be an eternal savior. I anything less than that wouldn't work. So that's why the deity of Christ ties exactly perfectly into uh, getting saved and, and acknowledging that he actually could pay for your sins, that you don't have to worry if it, you know, isn't going to cut it because Jesus is eternal. Uh, but it says next. Okay. So that's the, the first thing. But the next thing, 
is in verse number 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Nothing is mentioned there about baptism. Okay, confession here is a prayer to God. We know that because in verse number 13, it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the, what? Lord. Lord. And Paul constantly talks about when he's writing to the churches, I'm writing to all who call on the name of the Lord. He says that in 1 Corinthians, calling on the name of the Lord is beseeching the Lord. It is asking the Lord to supply you with something. And here in this context, what are you calling on the Lord for? Salvation, mm. to be forgiven. And what is the object of your faith? An eternal savior, the Lord. Okay, that's the first thing. But it mentions that he died and rose again. And we, we looked at how that's referring to Jesus paying for our sins on the cross. And when he came back from the dead, we are cleared. From our human perspective, we know that the cross worked because of the resurrection. So now that we have an object of faith, what is left for us to do? Well, it says in verse number 11, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. So what is there left for us to do? To call upon him. That's it. And when we think about evangelism, we shouldn't go any far uh, further beyond what Paul describes in verse 14. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? That's it. A preacher comes. They hear. They believe. They call upon the Lord knowing their need. Mm. And that's the gospel. Now, baptism is important. That's a, what I would call a secondary doctrine. Okay. It's not a doctrine necessary. Okay. Uh, for salvation. As for salvation. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. So we talk about primary doctrines, word of faith here. Okay, and when I say word of faith, we're not talking about the word of faith movement. We're talking about word of faith as Paul defines it. Okay, the gospel. Okay, you need to obviously believe in a God. Okay, because all this presupposes God. When you talk about Lord of all, we're talking about the creator. Jesus is him. Okay, you need to know who he is and you need to believe that he came down, died and rose again. So that's the gospel. And it's interesting. Somebody uh, do something for me. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 and read verses three through four. Somebody get. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. I had a professor that challenged me one time, and part of this lesson is based on what he shared with me back in the day. It, it really called my attention to how important it was to know the basics because we can get caught up in lots of intricate theology. So if somebody is called upon the name of the Lord, but they have Jesus' identity wrong and they don't recognize him as the eternal God. They're not calling upon the name of the Lord. Yeah. I mean, because here Jesus is identified as the Lord who came down from above. Lord is Yahweh. You don't have to know that God's name is Yahweh, but the whole context here is indicating that Lord implies Maybe like Jesus is a guy. He died for my sins. I'm accepting. No. Him. Yeah. They, they probably wouldn't believe in him anyways. Uh, why would you believe that the death of some random guy 2000 years ago would work? Right. Um, so that probably isn't even going to convince them to believe, but um, yeah, here, and this is one of those things where even free grace people will disagree on this. Um, I don't think that you have to have a robust understanding of the Trinity. I don't, I don't think that you have to fully understand it. Like I, I didn't really start studying Nicene theology as in the Nicene Creed until I got to college. And even then I didn't understand it. And for a while after that, I rejected certain aspects of it, uh, like the eternal generation of Jesus, because I just didn't, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, but I grew up believing in the Trinity. It's like, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. I'm not going to try to, you know, elaborate on that. God's three and one, right? 
Um, I don't think that you need to understand, you know, the creeds. I don't think that you need to understand even what eternal generation means to be saved. I just know that when I was six years old, okay, and they shared the gospel, I knew that there was a God, okay? I knew there was a heaven and there was a hell, right? So all this conversation that we're having tonight, Romans 10 presupposes you got to be saved from something. You're saved from eternal condemnation. That's another thing that these guys that I was talking to, I had to really bring that forward and emphasize it. Like, what are you saved from? Because when I said I got saved when I was six, I was saved from hell. And, and then we started to talk a little bit about hell and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, when I was six, I didn't understand the Trinity completely. I mean, I can remember when I was that age asking my mom, like, okay, God, God is father. Okay. So the father is God and Jesus is God, right? And they're like, yes. I'm like, but he's God's son too. So he's God and he's God's son. And they, and my mom didn't try to explain it to me. She just said, yes. yes. And I was like, okay. I mean that to me, none of us understand. Yeah. That. To me, I, as a kid, I was just like, okay, I just want to make sure I'm understanding it. Right. But you're saying that he's the son of God and he's God, the son. And they're one. And, and I was like, okay, I, I, I'll accept that. It's a mystery. I don't understand everything yeah. about God. Who am I to question God? Okay. Childlike faith for you. But when I was six, I didn't understand a lot. I just knew that Jesus was God. He loved me so much that he became a man. He did everything for me on the cross. Okay. He rose again and he's in heaven today and he's willing to save me if I ask him to. And if I don't get forgiven of my sins, if I'm not saved, then I will not be with him forever. Those are the basics, right? So simple. And I was like, Jesus saved me. And I prayed. And afterwards I was like, I did it. All right. I, I did what he asked me to do. He wants me to, to receive his gift. Mm. I, I received his gift and I was happy. I was excited. I can remember running out to the car and, and telling my mom and my dad that I was a Christian. And so, um, but yeah, there are some people in the free grace movement who they will disagree on this. They'll say, you don't need to believe that Jesus is God to be saved, but I, I firmly disagree. I mean, from, from what I've read of the Bible myself and particularly this, this chapter and also in John, I mean, John talks to his audience and he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And the context makes it clear that he is talking about his, his deity and him coming from heaven. So that's something that you have to believe. There are some hyper-grace people. Yeah, um, we're not that. But um, anyways, who had 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4? Go ahead and read that for us, Matt. Thank you. 3 through 4? Yes, just 3 and 4. All right. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So simple, ain't it? I can remember my professor saying, all right, who can tell me where in the Bible the gospel is defined? Like literally, show me in the Bible where an author inspired by the Holy Spirit says, this is the gospel. And everybody was stumped. We were like, well, Romans 10, 13. He's like, it doesn't say this is the gospel. So show me where it says this is the gospel. And we were all like, is there actually a place that says this is the gospel? And in those simple terms and and Paul's like, this is the gospel that was given to me that I'm giving you. This is it. And then he goes on and he defines it. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead three days later according to the scriptures. And then he goes on and says that he appeared to the 12 and then he appeared to James and then he appeared to me. And so it's like, wow, isn't that pretty simple? Why do Christian denominations get that so confused? I don't understand. Um, but that's, that's the gospel. 
And that is, according to Paul right here, that's the historical content of our faith. That Jesus was incarnated, okay? I don't, and this is, again, some people may disagree with this, but if you're sharing the gospel with someone, and let's say you share the deity of Jesus and the free gift of salvation because of what he did on the cross for you, okay? And then he rose again. Just these basic things that Paul talks about in Romans 10. But let's say you happen to not mention the virgin birth, mm. or you don't mention the multiplication of the lobes, or, or the wine miracle at Cana, okay? People don't have to believe in those things to be saved. That's not part of Paul's word of faith. Right. right. Now, of course, in his mind, okay, when Christ came down from heaven, it clearly involved the virgin birth. But the main point is, who is Christ? God. Now, the virgin birth points to Christ, right. okay? But what you need to know isn't the sign. You need to know the fact. And the fact is, Jesus is God from heaven. He's the Lord of heaven. Now, the facts that you do need to know, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and three days later he rose again according to the scriptures. And after you receive those basic truths and call upon the name of the Lord, as it says in Romans 10, 13, then you will grow and you'll continually learn more about Christ. I mean, uh, it's an ongoing study. I mean, I've talked to people who... They think that, okay, well, you get to the New Testament and Jesus shows up. And they don't realize in the Old Testament, you have all these angel of the Lord passages. And um, that's Jesus in the Old Testament. And so you share that with them. And they're like, oh, well, I didn't know that. So there are lots of things about Jesus that we learn after we get saved. I but about, like the, the Christians underground in closed country that they've got like one page of the Bible. They pass to the whole church and everybody copies it down. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. How are you going to get all that information? Yeah, you, you can't get all that information unless someone's there to tell you or you have the Bible in your language. But when missionaries go, what what are we saying is the like if we were to clear away all the stuff that's God's word, but it's not necessary for them to know. And we've got to tell them what's necessary. Maybe you've only got, let's say you got five minutes with somebody. And like this is the only opportunity they're ever going to have to know Jesus. You need to have his deity that he came down from heaven. He became a man. Okay. As a man, he died for you because you're a sinner. He paid for your sin. He came back from the dead. And all you have to do now that he's in heaven is ask him to save you, and he saves you. And, and those things right there are all that's necessary for someone to believe to be saved. And so, like I said, we can really get deep in theology when we're uh, having our studies, but those are things that we need to go back to. And the reason that I, I guess it's on my heart so much is because um, I do see a lot of Christians, and they're they they know the truth, okay? They they know basic doctrine, but I think they have a hard time pinpointing what really matters. If that makes any sense, mm -hmm. you know, they they don't know where to draw the line. Um, and you have a lot of people who are pushing, you know, for denominations to come together. I had a conversation with a guy the other day, a young man that I'm teaching at CLC, and. And he would say, wouldn't it be great if just like all the churches came together and, you know, mm. sat together. And, and I'm like, well, mm. I, I said, I said, on the surface, that sounds great. I said, but there are certain things that people who say they're Christians um, don't all agree on. Mm. And, and we need to make sure that the important things are hills to die on. That you're actually Christians. Yes, Absolutely. And so if I sat, hey, listen, if someone went to a Pentecostal church their whole life 
and they sat down in front of me and I had a conversation with them and I said, is Jesus God? Okay. And if they're like, okay, yes, Jesus is God. Okay, good. All right. All right. And, and Jesus paid for your sins, all of them. Yes. And they, he rose again. Yes. Yes. And have you called upon him to save you? Yes, but did he okay. speak in tongues? Sorry, it didn't count. Uh, no, that's not what I'm saying. No, that's uh, that was my Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I would say I would say if you're adding, okay, you have just distorted the gospel um when you do that. Because he doesn't say call in the name of the Lord and speak in tongues. Uh so it, but if if you are adding those things to the gospel and people don't realize like mentally they're, they think, okay, what are the conditions? If I could write them out, I got to have faith and do these other things. Mm-hmm. Okay. At that point, you don't have the gospel clearly presented. Um, you're going to confuse the person and you could even prevent that person from truly believing if what they think they're believing in isn't Jesus as a sufficient savior, but I got to depend upon myself. Okay, or other people to get involved, like if baptism's the case. Like mm-hmm. I, I've got I've gotta speak in tongues myself. That's my own thing I gotta wrestle with. And then I gotta go get baptized, and then I gotta, you know, join a church and I gotta do all these things. And there are a lot of conditions that people will heap onto the condition believe, or they'll redefine belief to where they fit stuff in faith that doesn't belong there. So that's the scary thing, I think, isn't really the deity of Christ as much. Uh, among traditional denominations, talk to Pentecostal Church of God, Church of Christ. Uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, you know, they're all going to say Jesus is God. And it's like, okay, could we cut that? We don't have to argue that because, you know, we're not dealing with, you know, cults such as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. But, you know, when it comes to salvation, I think a Presbyterian, I think a Methodist, I think a Baptist, um, I think Lutheran, I think a number of these denominations would probably on the surface agree with you call in the name of the Lord and you're saved. And then mm. they would they would understand that as it's a it's a one time event. They call it justification. You know, some would say you can lose it, but we're not going to get into that right now. Just like you you get saved at a point, right? And then you have other people who they might you might find a Pentecostal a number of them that say you're saved, and then you lose it. Okay, so they'd be like the Methodists. You might find some Pentecostals though that would even go as far to say you've got to work to really be saved. Like final salvation mm. depends upon work. Uh, one particular person that I follow writes blogs. Um, he was in one of these Pentecostal groups and it wasn't like maybe other people have experienced where you get saved and they say, okay, well you called upon the Lord and you're saved, right? You might find a number of them that believe that, but his was not like that. They were like, you got to every single day, pray so many times. You got to confess every sin. You've got to be telling people about Jesus like every day, you. you know, and, and he was, this was a Pentecostal you know, church. And like I said, it may be aberrant. It may not represent what most Pentecostals believe, but he was certainly not believing the gospel. I thought that every night before you go to bed, you better confess all of your sins and ask for forgiveness. Because if you die and you didn't ask for forgiveness, then you could go to hell. Yeah. And that is, that is terrible because I mean, how, if someone believes in hell, the people who teach that obviously do, um, how do you live every day? I mean, thinking that like literally you're standing on the edge of a cliff and hell is right there next to you. And if you mess up, if you just accidentally mess up and forget a sin and you don't confess it, then you're done. Um, that's a terrible way to live. My grandma, every time that, a, that an invitation was given and they would be praying, you know, from the pulpit, she would repeat the prayer. Yeah. 
I think that some people like that, and I know I can say this because I have OCD. Um, I think that a lot of that is psychological. I think a lot of it is. I don't think it's just. If you weren't in church on Sunday, if you did something, if you stepped out of line, whoop. And I feel so, and I think that, I will say, I do believe that God, you know, he takes into consideration things like that. Um, Yeah, so whenever I, back like years ago, I remember I went through a hard time and I was doubting the resurrection. And uh, I had this horrible, like, it was like a waking nightmare. I just, I, I saw myself. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. And again, I attribute all this to OCD because that's what it was. But I had this, this image of me standing up in church, walking down, placing my Bible on the altar and turning and leaving it. And wow. like leaving my faith that way. And, and I had that image in my head. And it was like, like that, like that feeling when you're standing on the edge of like a skyscraper and you have that feeling to jump. Like you have that irrational feeling. It's like jump, jump. I felt that. And it was like so overwhelming because it made me, it made me question the sincerity of my faith. Like if, if I could actually imagine myself doing something like that, like how, how much of a believer really I am, if I could, you know, imagine leaving everything behind like that. And so it was, and of course, right after that, um, you know, God was good. And I, I got past that and I look back on it now and I'm like, man, that's so silly. But in the moment, I think there is something to be said for people that have like generalized anxiety and OCD. Back, I think she's on, she's on the spectrum. Um, so, but now uh, she's standing in front of the Lord for a year this week, right? Mm-hmm. And Delivered uh, from all that. Praise God. Yeah. And he, she, she's probably thinking, wow, I spent 87 years of my life in the old, you know, believing this and beating myself up and feeling like I wasn't good enough. And then, like, the day I died, I found out that was all wrong all those years. Yeah, and, and there are other cases where I don't think that has anything to do with psychology. You have, like, okay, John Wesley. John mm. Wesley, when he first started the Methodist movement, uh, the Holy Club, I think is what they called themselves. Uh, and they were all in seminary, and, and they were young men, and they were like, we're going we're gonna to be very, very regulated. That's why they got the term Methodist. And from what I understand, they got that term before John Wesley even got saved but they were very methodical, right? That's why they got the name. And uh, he went to Georgia, had a failure there the first time that he went. Savannah, uh, Savannah yeah. And it, it was, if you read his writings, like he was not saved at this point. No. Um, and so he was on, I think he, he was either on the way or on the way back home. I think he was on the way and there was a ship uh, that he was traveling on, right? And there was a storm and he was traveling with Moravian missionaries. And in the middle They're of the storm, saved. in the middle, yeah, in the middle of the storm, like, they're freaking out or he's freaking out. Sorry. And they're not, they're, they're, they're singing hymns. Like they're, they're just having, you know, a service on the ship and he's like freaking out and they recognize that he's quite, you know, visibly disconcerted. And so they said, um, do you know Jesus? Simple question. He says, I know Jesus is the savior of the world. And the guy replied and said, but is he your savior? Mm. And John Wesley didn't he wrestled with that like that question was in his mind while he was laying sick most of the time that he was in georgian savannah that first trip he was sick most of the time didn't really get much done but it was just a very fruitless trip and he went back home dejected but he sat in a sermon or sat in a church service and heard a sermon i don't know who preached it but it was on romans and it was the just shall live by faith and and he realized that all of the methods all of the the works all the stuff wouldn't ever do it and he said i felt i think he described it as like a warmth like i just felt like the love of god 
because I felt peace. It's like the moment that I believed that it was by faith and not by works, I immediately just felt relieved and I had assurance. Mm -hmm. That was when he got saved. Is that not the same verse that led the whole Reformation? Absolutely. But what's interesting is, ironically, afterwards, John Wesley started teaching very adamantly in many of his sermons that you could fall from grace. But he didn't believe that when he was hearing that preacher. What was in his mind at that time? I'm saved. Praise God. There was nothing but joy that he was saved. And, uh, and I believe 100% that was truly when he received the Lord. But afterwards, confusion. Yeah, and that happens with a lot of people. Sometimes, you know, it's, you know, uh, just poor education or your, you know, your fear, fear your, yeah, a lot of it's fear. So fear, ignorance, lots of different factors, I suppose. But uh, anyways, uh, the main thing I guess that I wanted to share was that we need to understand the word of faith ourselves when we have these opportunities to share the gospel, uh, to really highlight the, the glory of Christ as the eternal son of God, to highlight the freeness of his grace through faith and faith alone. And then lastly, to not downplay the threat of hell. Like that's something that I was surprised. Like I was ready in a way the word of faith was on my mind because I've talked about this before. And so I went to the deity of Christ. I went to the freeness of salvation. I talked about being born again. I talked about eternal security. I tried to highlight all these things. But one of the things that I was kind of surprised by was how eternal condemnation from hell was so crucial to our discussion because I said, um, what happens if you don't do enough good? Because they said, well, I'm trying to obey my heavenly father. I said, okay, what happens if you don't do enough? Okay. When you stand before the Lord one day, and do you know what they said to me, which shocked me? He said, well, I, I wouldn't want to be with him. I wouldn't want to be with him. If I, if I didn't live righteously, then when I stand before him one day, heaven wouldn't appeal to me. And I said, and I said, have you ever read Luke 16? And I shared the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and said that rich man saw paradise and he begged to just have a drop of water put on his tongue. I said, when you stand before the Lord one day, and, and I hope this doesn't happen, but if you stand before the Lord one day and you find out like we all ought to know that we fail, that we can't make the cut by our works, when you discover that one day, you're not going to say, okay, well, excuse me, Lord, I'm just going to, go to hell here because I wouldn't be very comfortable. You know, I wouldn't feel right going into heaven, you know, seeing as I didn't live righteous for you. So I'm just going to go over here to hell. I'll be more comfortable here than I will be in heaven. No, you are going to be begging, begging to be with the Lord. And you won't be if you don't have the blood of Christ. And that's a hard thing to say to somebody that you don't know. It's a hard thing to say to a stranger that they need Jesus that much. But I had to, illustrate this stuff. I pointed out Luke 16. I said, uh, revelation. I said, I'll read this to you real quick. This is something that, gosh, it's not popular today at all, but in uh, revelation 15, um, it says, or sorry, revelation chapter 14 in verse nine, the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man 
Worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever. And they have no rest day or nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Like you cannot downplay that at all. You can't. There's no way that you can ignore that. And churches do all the time. And, and again, I'm not necessarily in favor of hellfire and brimstone preaching um, where you just shout at your congregation and yell at them and slam the pulpit. However, you don't need to do any of those things to make that scary. Right. Now, if you have the blood of Jesus, Let's just read it. Yeah, just read it. Yeah. If you have the Holy Spirit cleansing you, and you know that it's free. It's not by works. Mm -hmm. Now, if it was by works, I'd be scared of this verse every day in my life. Yeah. Terrified of it. But thankfully, knowing that salvation's free, this doesn't cause me fear like it once did. Because I understand that salvation is a free gift. But if you don't have that assurance, there's only one option. You can either live every single day in absolute fear, okay? Mm. Which most people don't prefer to do, right? okay? And to escape that fear, they usually take option B. Yeah. They will have to downplay something. Now, either they they really turn up the grace of God and it makes them feel assured of their salvation and they're safe from hell. That's the right way they should go. Yeah. Or they downplay the nature of hell. They'll either erase it altogether or they downplay it. And that's what the cults do. They don't reject it altogether. They know they can't ignore the fact that judgment's taught in the Bible. But they will try to make, like he did in this conversation this evening, he will try to make hell a comfortable thing. Something that's not as good as heaven, but you would prefer it if you, you know, got there and you weren't righteous in the eyes of God. And so that's the way he's able to make himself feel better and, and get up every day and live his life without fear. No but deep, but, but no weeping and gnashing of teeth. But deep down, why does he work so hard? He's why? Because he's afraid. But he, he doesn't want to consider that fear. He doesn't want to bring it out in the open. He doesn't want to read verses like that and really consider the implications. Um, and I don't, I don't know why, honestly, it's self-righteousness, I suppose, loyalty to false teaching. But to me, why would you not be chomping at the bit to receive the gracious gift of salvation? Knowing what scripture teaches about hell and eternal judgment. I don't understand it. Um, I mean, but, they've also got the whole community, right? Like, I know in Jehovah's Witness, true. If, you, if you turn away from Jehovah's Witness, you're excommunicated. Like yeah. Your family won't speak to you anymore. And if you're raised in it, it's, you know, you're it's costly because your family may very well ostracize you. Yeah, that's a good point. But anyways, those are just some things that I thought of during our conversation this evening with the Mormons and afterwards. And I hope that if you are listening to this, you got something from that. But... Um, I didn't mean to really give you a lot of information about Mormonism itself. I will go ahead and tell you that, you know, Mormons believe that Jesus is, you know, a, a spirit being like an angel that became a man. And then that man became God through effort and righteousness. So really, they believe that Jesus is a man who became a God rather than the God who became a man. So it's a complete role reversal when we look at the Bible and, and true doctrine. And of course, they don't believe in hell as scripture teaches uh they they downplay you know the seriousness of it and they say that you have to work 
to. By grace you are saved after all you can do. He quoted that exact same verse to me, and I was prepared for it. I knew he was going to say it, and there it was. And so, anyways, those are the basic beliefs of Mormonism. If you run into them, just understand that uh, they don't believe in the same Jesus, and they don't believe that salvation is a gift. And if you understand those two things, then you know what to talk about. Um, but hopefully that was educational for you. Hopefully it reminded you of what's important. And hopefully you walk away from this thankful that you're saved. Because this conversation night just made me so thankful that I'm saved. And um, I'm going to make sure that my kids know the right of it. And as many people as I can, I'm going to share it with them. And honestly, I got pumped by that conversation right after. I was like, Katie, get out my camel's hair. I'm going to grow out this beard and eat locusts. And I'm going to the, the city square. You know, that's the way I felt. So anyways. <laughs> You know what? I'd, I've got a lot of work to do, and I don't know how much work I'd get done after after that if I chose to do that. I don't know if I'd come out of that one. Yeah, <laughs> probably. I probably would. But anyways, uh, God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, next time we'll resume our study on sign gifts and healing. Thank you. Mm -hmm.